0: Sit comfortably. You know, just to begin to, um, to share a moment of bowing with you, maybe you do the same as what I do, but when I come in and I bow to the Buddha, I'm bowing to that whole scene behind the Buddha. The Buddha is just the figure in the foreground, but there's that whole background. And that is really the spirit of bowing to the Buddha too. We bow to that, to that figure from that person from whom these original teachings emanated, what we're bowing to, everything. Mm -hmm. To give today's talk a title, it's three levels of acceptance, or three levels of self-acceptance. But let me begin with a koan, which I made up. If there is no self, how can you come to a place of deep self-acceptance? If someone asked me that question, I would say, ask the magpie, he'll show you. Ask the mother duck, she'll show you. Ask the tree, it'll show you. Let's look at this in more depth. Three levels of self-acceptance. The three levels that I'm outlining here are what could be called uh, cognitive levels of self-acceptance. In other words, to do with how we use our thinking mind and language. Next level down, um, heart-based self-acceptance. And then the third level down is the acceptance that comes through the experience of suchness, Mm -hmm. things just as they are. With the first level, (coughs) cognitive acceptance, Um, this is a process which is embodied in one of the most prominent forms of psychotherapy in the West, which is cognitive behaviour therapy. And um, cognitive behavior therapy is based on the principle that what you think about yourself will influence the way you feel about yourself. And so, if you think negative thoughts about yourself, like that you're unworthy or unlovable or no good or whatever, <clears throat> it'll impact on your, your feeling states and your sense of well-being. And so, if you then examine those automatic negative thoughts that you think to yourself and you ruminate on and you replace them with positive or rational thoughts about yourself basically i'm okay and so on then then it'll help change the way you experience yourself and relate to others and um, there is some there is some basis to that too in um, buddhism i wouldn't be the first person to have said it but the, the Buddha said something along the lines, too, that you, you, you become what you think. Mm-hmm. And so the, the mind is capable of, you know, the wondrous... human mind is capable of the most wondrous kind of things and creativity. But its dark side is that it can um, turn on itself mm-hmm. and be, be self-destructive. And that's the basis of um, cognitive behaviour therapy. It's also the basis of a lot of um, positive thinking type personal growth models as well. And, and uh, models of personal growth, therapy, etc. lifestyles which are based on cultivating optimism. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying these things aren't useful but they have a limited use, and they can take people only so far in terms of coming to a sense of well-being or a sense of self-acceptance. The research shows they work to some degree. But I would suggest from a Zen perspective that they don't necessarily really ground you in the deepest possible way in which you could be grounded. Because if, if your whole sense of self is based on words, language, rationality, replacing negative thoughts with positive thoughts, it's all still top-heavy up here. It's all top-heavy. It hasn't really settled down into the depths of your being, but it's helpful to some degree. I don't think any, any Buddhist teacher would refute that it's helpful to some degree because it's part of the Buddhist teaching to recognise that what we, we, we distort our reality through the way that we think. And some ways of thinking are helpful and some are not helpful. But that's one level at which we can come to some sense of um, equanimity and peace within ourselves and reduce... A sense of conflict or suffering. The next level down is heart-based um, um, self-acceptance. So, instead of it just being all up here in the brain and the head, there's a, there's a level of, of acceptance that can come from here, and you find a new wave of different therapies and approaches coming out of of self-acceptance which is not so head-based and cognitively based. For example, the work of um, Kristen Neff who has uh, uh, taken Buddhist principles of compassion and written about and researched and and provided workshop and training for people in self-compassion. So with self-compassion, you, you bring the same sense of kindness and empathy to yourself in a heartfelt way as you would to other people that you naturally feel compassion for in the world, like a child or a friend or a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, as though recognising that we're, we're just all equally deserving of that compassion as the, ourselves as the people we may give it to. Which a lot of people in our culture overlook. Some people can be very good at giving compassion to other people but they forget this one. So loving kindness meditations, um, so compassion meditations which in traditional Buddhist meditation style can start with the self, giving love to the self, compassion to the self, then moving out to other people that you love, people you're neutral, people who you dislike or hate, moving it out in that direction. So those things do help people as well, and I also think um, trialling them on myself too and working with this is that they, for me, they work if I'm not trying to work too hard at it. You know, if if you're if you're really working hard at trying to you know, sending out love to everyone all the time, compassion to everyone to yourself all the time in this kind of very very intense straining kind of way it kind of doesn't have the right feel about it. It's kind of like you know trying to trying to send it out with sort of you know fluorescent lights you know blazing, but the spirit in which I do that myself it's it's sort of like. I just become aware of the sense of love or compassion, whether it's to myself or others. And it's not a kind of trying to do something, but it's kind of like, it's still like being big lights flashing out. It's kind of like just the glow of a candle. Mm-hmm. It's sort of more modest. It's just kind of like the glow of a candle emanating a warmth. And you, and you sort of touch in. You tune in to that part of yourself. But if there becomes too much trying in it, um, then it seems kind of a bit false or fake in some kind of way. It's trying to manipulate experience in some kind of way. So whether we use cognitive methods to come to self-acceptance or we use more heart-based methods to come to self-acceptance, what I want to say about them, and the language may be a bit harsh, but as a way of getting the point across, they're all ways of using our consciousness to manipulate our experience. We're trying to manipulate our experience, we're trying to change our experience from what it is into something else change our thinking processes of the manipulation. Changing the way we feel from the heart is in some sense a kind of conscious manipulation of experience. I'm not saying it doesn't work, and they can be very good preliminary kind of practices, probably essential kind of preliminary practices before one comes to a very deep sense of self-acceptance. Ultimately, the Zen approach to coming to a deep sense of self acceptance, and this is what does occur, whether it happens suddenly through sudden Kensho experiences in Zen or whether it's just a gradual kind of absorption in suchness, you know, from meditating daily and through session, whichever way it is, whether it's gradual or sudden or a mixture of both, there's a different type of experience that we, we have. And it's hard to put into words, but it's the experience of suchness. Mm-hmm. When you meditate, like in, in just sitting with open awareness, what the Japanese call shikantaza, just sitting, there's no manipulation of experience at all. The body is still and the conscious mind is not trying to do anything at all. It's just, it's just turned on, switched on, the light switched on rather than being switched off but it's not trying to do anything at all. It's not trying to do an exercise. It's not trying to change experience in any way. It's just witnessing experience as it is. Mm. Um, as meditation is becoming more popular in the culture, what what you find happening is that it it's kind of like um, becoming like different diets. You know, like this different diets become like a fad. You know, D- this diet will do it for you. You know, now this diet will do it for you. And um, it's all like little variations of how to meditate by breathing out twice as long as you breathe in, or to think of reminisce on positive experiences, whatever it might be. Um, And they're all kind of brain exercises, and people are really into brain exercises as something to do. But they're they're becoming a bit like diet fats, you know, it's like the next new exciting thing that's going to come up that's going to do it for you, right? This will do it for me. And like I'm saying, it's not as though there's no benefit in them whatsoever, but if we just hover at that level and we never go beyond that level, um, then of, of doing something to get a certain outcome in that kind of way, we'll miss, we'll actually miss something which is deeper. Um, more profound um, in our experience. And the reason why I'm emphasising this so much um, in this talk is because I want all of you, I want all of us to be able to really come to a very deep sense of self-acceptance about ourselves and of life. That's the point of it. So when you just sit, you don't get your consciousness to do anything, you just get it to be switched on and aware of the passing moment. It's not even manipulating the mind to concentrate on a single point over and over again, like your breath or a mantra or moo or breath counting. It's just turning up and allowing yourself to be flowing along with the present moment, whatever that might be. And whatever the dominant experience is, it kind of takes your attention and then it fades away, like the sound of a bird singing, and then there's the emptiness of the stillness and the quietness, mm-hmm. and then there's a pain in your knee, Just goes from one thing to another. And like I was saying about adaptability yesterday, in many ways this kind of type of meditation where there's no fixed concentration point actually provides you the greatest skill to be adaptable in life, where there's no fixed point you have to attach to. I realised a number of years ago when I became um, more serious about learning to play music, learning the flute that I thought beforehand that all of my single-pointed meditation experience would really help me with playing the flute because it's developing concentration. I'm sure it did to some extent. But what I realised is that there was in some ways a mismatch because um, music doesn't have a fixed point. Music is a flow of notes and rhythm, one thing happening after another. Passing through time, mm-hmm. and uh, doesn't have a fixed point. It's moving, and if you have a meditation which is like that, it's just moving with the flow of impermanent time and experience coming. Then, then you're there. There's no, no nothing fixed about your experience at all. You're ready to adapt, mold yourself, and. Um, having a meditation that helps you play music really it's the same as having a meditation that helps you live your life more skillfully mm-hmm. again I want to emphasize all of those things like breath counting etc are really good I teach them I emphasize them and in all of the <clears throat> meditation traditions not just then but in speaking to Tibetan Buddhists teachers and Vipassana teachers, um, they all recognise the importance of doing these preliminary practices to really focus on a single point and to learn to develop concentration. And um, Because they're the preliminary skills that you need to develop before you can just really let go into what in Zen called Shikantaza. But in Tibetan Buddhism, in the um, Dzogchen tradition, they do exactly the same type of meditation. And I believe in Vipassana, they have a form of meditation called um, open awareness, um, which is the same again. So they're there in all the traditions, and you can do all the preliminary practices, they're good, but eventually, in a lot of these traditions, it brings you back to just just being, just pure being. at a talk I gave in um, Sydney recently on this to another another group. I don't know if you know um, Bhante Tejadama, but he, he often invites me to um, Sangha Lodge in Sydney to give a talk once a year, and I gave a similar talk to this, and one man in the audience after the talk asked me a question and he said i I work in a hospital as a nurse, and um, on Fridays, Saturdays, and the weekends, um, in emergency, it's like it's really chaotic. You know, you've got people coming in with head injuries and drunks and suicidality, and people's emotions are all over the place, and it's it's just chaotic. And how as a Buddhist, do you know do you do you practice with that? Well, it comes back again to what I said about adaptability. If, you, if, you, if your idea of meditation is to go into this little cocoon of samadhi, you know, where it's all calm and quiet, like being in a womb, um, and you, you're clinging to it in some kind of way, well, you're eventually going to miss the point. Mm-hmm. And that was at the essence of that man's question. Mm-hmm. But as I responded to him, If chaos is what life is presenting to you, and people demanding various things from various quarters, etc., then you give yourself over to the chaos. You give yourself over to the busyness. You just be busy. You just become one with the chaos. It doesn't mean you're reacting to it all over the place, but you're accepting that's the suchness of that experience. And if you do that, then you can be more capable of responding to that person who wants to kill themselves, so that person is overdosed, Mm -hmm. that person who's yelling abuse at you. Mm -hmm. But if you want to hold on to your little cocoon of stillness then you're setting up a duality with life and it will keep pushing on you like a woody woodpecker. (laughs) Wake up, (laughs) wake up and don't hang on to that stillness. True equanimity in the Zen tradition is not about a little state of mind in here, it's about becoming one with your circumstances, and our circumstances change moment to moment, they never stay the same. Sometimes they're pleasant, sometimes they're neutral, sometimes they're unpleasant, sometimes they're terrifying, but that is the skill, becoming one with your circumstances. This is just not me saying this with my own opinion of Zen training. This is in all of the literature. All of the Zen teachers you'll find through the tradition warn about people being stuck in what they said is a cave. What they meant by the cave is this little little bubble of samadhi that people go into. And that's why the old teachers hit people with sticks and shouted at them, wake up! Get out of a little bubble. Mm -hmm. Break down the division between you and the world. Mm -hmm. Engage. Be one with life. When you can start to experience suchness, well There's the suchness of my experience of being in this body and mind at the moment, Um, but there's also the experience of the suchness of this room and you in this moment right now, and the temperature. Everything just as it is. Mm -hmm. And the more I come to an experience of the suchness of my circumstances, the more I come to an experience of the suchness of myself, I just am what I am. You just are what you are in this moment. There's no need to manipulate it in any kind of way. That's why I said in the beginning with that koan, ask the magpie, he'll show you what acceptance is, because he'll just sing. And he's not self-conscious. About singing, he just sings. He's one with his singing. He's not trying to improve his singing. He's not trying to be a better magpie. Mm-hmm. He doesn't go to workshops where he <laughs> works out how he can accept himself more as a better magpie. Mm-hmm. See, when you when you get down to that level, it is funny. Because once you actually experience that level, this idea that a part of you is going to accept the other part, you know, and come to some self-acceptance, just seems really silly. It's really silly, truly. It's like, if you have a deep sense of acceptance, the idea of some, of, of of actually, what. The idea of actually that you've come to accepting yourself or that you're going to accept yourself or you're going to love yourself, it's just funny because the nature of insight experience of realising Buddha nature, whatever you want to call it, is that everything was okay right from the very beginning. You're okay right from the very beginning just that you became separated from yourself and you, you lost sight of that. You're actually okay right from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So saying that you're going to accept yourself or you're going to go to a journey of self-acceptance is, is um, like trying to make water wet. It's already wet. It's trying to make fire hot. It's already hot. Mm-hmm. That's That's the realisation that comes out of out of practice, that's the deeper realization that comes out of practice. And there's no self-conscious self-acceptance anymore, it's just to go about your daily life, and your daily tasks, and you do what you need to do without self-consciousness so much, that division inside of ourselves. And it's important to, to trust, trust that Buddha nature, to, try, to have faith in that, that Buddha nature. Um, and uh, that's at the heart of all of this. And it's not trying to define yourself in terms of some kind of Buddhist ideal or some kind of social ideal of how you should be. But take the, the Buddhist ideal or the religious ideal. The Buddhist idea might be that I should be a compassionate and loving person all of the time. Mm -hmm. Well I'm not, for one, can I speak for myself. Most of the time I experience just being most of the time in a state of pleasant equanimity. Too much frustration or you know difficulty self-created difficulty going on. So that's kind of like a neutral place. But then if I'm a counsellor, and I go to work on Tuesday morning and I start counselling and someone tells me about something distressing that happened to them, then I just automatically feel empathy and compassion. I don't have to try to, it's just there. And it comes forward in that response. And then when they go, it sort of goes back to neutrality again. Or I can, feel, I can feel love for a friend or my wife or whatever. It comes up in moments and then it goes. Equanimity there sometimes. Love is there sometimes. It's a wave that comes and goes. I'm not joyful all the time. Sometimes I am. And joyful situations will bring it forth. Sometimes I'm sad. That's okay. We can't define ourselves by a state because we are a flow. But if we trust in this deeper self-acceptance, this sense of suchness, where we don't have to manipulate our experience, we can trust that intuitively responses are gonna come out of that, which will be appropriate responses to life. And yes, we need to have a conscience and we don't need to have an ethical check on our behavior. And some, somehow the trust is so deep that it's just a reminder how we guide our behaviour, but we, we come to this point that we, we trust the heart. So I'm saying all this, like I said before, because I really want everyone to be able to really experience the deepest sense of self-acceptance that they can